thank you again. It's, it's always, uh, uh, you know, you don't know me, and yet you're going to listen to me talk about the Bible. And that's a, that's a weighty thing for me, to be able to teach God's Word. So I appreciate it. And hopefully, as we go through, we'll be in Acts 16. So I'm going to just pick it up right where Matt left off, and away we go. There's a couple of cool stories this morning. But I want to start with a thought. Um, there's a fellow named Bernard of Clairvaux, kind of in that mystic, uh, spiritual world. We get the word clairvoyant from his last name. He's a sharp guy, and he wrote about um, four loves, but not in the way C.S. Lewis did, think four stages of love. And he was thinking about how we enter into a relationship with God, and he says that that first stage of love uh, we enter into a relationship with God for our own sake. So we love God for our sake. And I think we can all relate to that because I think we all start there. And it's sort of, I'm in a pickle and God's going to help me. I'm, I don't know where I'm headed and God tells me and promises me a different kind of future than maybe I expected. So that's beneficial. Okay, I'll sign on. Uh, there's something helpful that he brings, and we say, okay, that's good. That's normal. We all do it. That's how we enter in. But it's important that we understand that that's just the beginning. And then Bernard will go through other stages. I encourage you to read Bernard's four stages of love. But um, it would be weird if we stayed in that first spot. So you think about like an Olympic sprinter, uh, and they might look at a toddler who's kind of wobbling and not walking well and say that's not sprinting <laughs> and yet that sprinter had to start wobbling and walking around but wouldn't get very far if they stayed on that wobbly path if that makes sense so we can look at loving God for our own sake as those first steps but we want to move past that got to get past those baby steps and here's the question that I think registers for some of the stories we'll see today it's it's where am I pledging my allegiance? So am I, am I going to stay in the sort of incurvature of the soul place where it's about me getting mine? Or is that going to start to turn toward a, an allegiance beyond allegiance to myself? And so we have to ask that question as we live our lives and we'll see pictures this morning of people who have given allegiance to Jesus and his mission. Am I choosing life with God as a path to self-fulfillment according to what I want the most? All right. Or am I choosing life with God so that I can serve Him and His people? So that that incurvature of my soul can be bent outward toward God and neighbor. Do I see coming to church as a way to be self-fulfilled? And that's another way of asking to what or whom are we giving our allegiance, all right? So, Acts 16, I'm going to put, this, uh, we'll put the text up as I go through it, and it's a big chunk of text, so we're going to do some reading together, and then I'll make some notes as we go along, but this, there's some cool stories here. So, here we go. Acts 16, pay attention to who the people are giving their allegiance to, or where they must have allegiance placed based on what we see them doing, Yes? Paul, verse 1, comes also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, 
who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. All right? Paul wants, or Luke, who's writing, is interested in us paying attention to that fact and, and what's the sort of conclusion. Well, if the old man is Greek, I'm probably not getting circumcised on the eighth day where I would be if the old man was Jewish. Yes? So he's Greek, which means uh, Timothy has not gone through that uh, scenario. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and he circumcised him. (laughs) Because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. All right. Timothy was stoked about this. And I'll pause here for a second because it's a little bit weird. If you're, if you've, if you're just starting to read the New Testament, uh, you can look for this as you go. If you've read it a couple times through, you've probably already saw, you know, in other places I see Paul saying that that doesn't make any, it doesn't make a hill of beans difference to get sac- uh, circumcised. He says there's no power in that. There's no reason to do that. And then here, he's not just saying you should do it. He's doing it to Timothy who was stoked. And so what is he getting at here? Uh, You know, what's the point? Well, this is that idea of Paul's allegiance to Jesus and his mission. He's so devoted to what Jesus is about that he's like, it doesn't, whatever you need to do for the folks around you to be acceptable, then do it. Become all things to all people. Because that doesn't really matter. What matters is that they're able to hear this, this evangel, this euangelion, this good news, the gospel. And so with Timothy, who would be recognized as not somebody, they might not even hate him, but they're not going to listen to him because he's not properly Jewish. Paul's like, okay, in this scenario, this is going to be great. In Galatians 2, he's with, talking with Titus. And Titus is facing these sort of religious elitists, and they're saying, if you want to be acceptable to God, you need to do this. And Paul's like, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. They don't get that power, it doesn't make you more acceptable to God. So in that context, he says, we're not, Titus, no, put down the knife, you know. And Titus is bummed, because he was hoping to do that. (laughs) So... Why does this matter? Well, I think it's a good little side note of how the complexities of life are something to pay attention to, and so are the complexities in the Bible. Because you might adopt a scenario where you say, bah, here's a verse that says all circumcision is no longer profitable in any way, and then bank your whole theology on that, and then you miss the point where if the people you're working with are worshiping in a synagogue, and they're all historically Jewish, and you want them to actually respect you, you got to enter into the kind of life that they're living. So he says, hey, this is a good thing now. Let's do it. And so he meets uh, with Timothy. You know, this wasn't some sort of crude thing, but I used to think like, gosh, in the first century, oh, they used flint knives. and You can chip a flint down to where it's sharper than a modern-day razor. This is good to know on Sunday morning. So, you know, <laughs> anyway, here's Timothy. He's got his bottle of Percocets and an uh, ice block, and they're off on their mission. So they're ready to go, and, and we pick it up again then in verse 4, all right? As they went on their way through the cities, and it, you, there's so many other stories, you know, that Luke could probably tell us. I'd love, 
We'll get to hear him when we live with him for 10 million years later, but he gives us a few snapshots right now. So they're going through the cities, and they delivered to them, these people, the observance, uh, the, for observance, the decisions that the apostles has made. So, so they're walking around and saying, here's where the church is going. Here's where some of the decision makers are moving. People are listening to that. They're stoked. So verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Things are moving well. Verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden uh, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Uh, That's weird. You know, what's up with that? You know, we're not told why they're not supposed to go to Asia. We're not told how this came to pass. Was it they had, like, we want to go do this, but we have a real deep internal turmoil over Maybe a prophetic word came from somebody. I'm not totally sure, but somehow God made it abundantly clear that's actually, like, that might be a great plan. It's just not what we're doing now. So they're prevented from going into Asia, and then they, uh, they go elsewhere. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. It's interesting. Paul had a plan. Jesus said, we're going to go elsewhere. And Paul says, I'm devoted to you more than my plan. My allegiance is to Jesus. So they follow Jesus. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. This is kind of like that vision that came uh, in the Peter and Cornelius scene, you know. You're going to meet this guy. Here's what you need to do. So here's this guy in his vision, verse 9. It appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging them and saying, Come on over to Macedonia and help us. So when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, interesting here, we, we sought to go on into Macedonia. Why is, why is the first person plural employed here? This is the first time we've seen that first person plural as we've been walking through Acts. And Luke is writing, I think a very natural conclusion is Luke joins the party at this point. So now he's walking and talking with Paul and the crew. And so away we go. Luke is joining and we get to the next story, verse 11, which is the conversion of Lydia. This is cool. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. Neapolis, they had to stop for ice cream because, you know, you remember the ice cream with the strawberry and chocolate and vanilla all lined? We don't do that anymore. We do like bone marrow and lavender, (laughs) weird crap like that. Used to just be chocolate and strawberry. Anyway, so they have their ice cream, and then from there to Philippi, they go. And, And Philippi, Luke calls a leading city, a leading city in the district of Macedonia, in a Roman colony. And they stayed there for some days. Philippi was cool. It had a real cutting-edge school of medicine. Luke is a physician. A a lot of folks kind of think Luke is probably from Philippi, so that's slick. Uh, Philippi was a prominent city, and to be a Roman citizen in this kind of place was a really good thing. The city was very prosperous, so uh, it had lots of fertile land around it. It also had several active gold mines going on. And about 100 years prior, Antony had declared it an Ias Italicum, so kind of like an embassy would be for us today. This is a um, 
It's a small microcosm of big Rome. And so all of the laws of the motherland are at place in this city, which means if you're a citizen of Rome in this city, you're exempt from poll taxes, from land taxes. You have a lot of rights in the court system, way more than others. So this is a cool place to be, and being a Roman citizen is a major deal, and that actually has bearing on the rest of the chapter toward the end. So we'll come back to that. But it's working just like a miniature Rome, and that's important because with the functional pragmatic workings of it uh, are also the cultural values and allegiances. And in Rome, allegiance was not going toward Yahweh or Jesus or anybody. It was the empire and the emperor and so forth. So that's the context, and we pick it up again on verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate down to the riverside where we supposed there to be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had all come together to pray. That's interesting. Here's Paul. He's the guest speaker, so to speak. His allegiance to Jesus and the gospel that Jesus preaches gives Paul a very strong motivation to not be restrained by gender barriers. I would expect a story like this to see Paul going to speak to the leading male elders of the city, to go to the leading teachers, to the influencers, the people who were more important in that day. All right, I didn't mean that for <laughs> as a principle. In that day. And that is not how the gospel reads. You can remember it from Galatians 3.28, the sense of, uh, there is no longer those gender barriers as though some are more important than others aren't. So Paul and the crew go and they're hanging out with a group of ladies who have gathered together for prayers, probably praying to Shema, something like that. All right, so here we go. And Paul is speaking in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay? We can read, to call a lady by her name is pretty normal today. <laughs> you know? It'd kind of be weird not to. In this scenario, first century, you're maybe reading this for the first time in the first century, and you're like, whoa, called her by her first name. That's odd. You're usually going to call her by her cognomen or her family, essentially her family's last name. So it's a big deal that he calls her by her first name. We can conclude from that that she's probably pretty high status and pretty Greek. And then we know from a couple other keys. We have evidence from later from this time. It's not right from this exact era, but later on we can find that um, purple clothing. That you're, you're at the highest level of being a merchant if that's what you're dealing in. So Luke wants us to see a woman who's prominent, wealthy, leading, known by her first name. This is a big deal, okay? And then the most important thing is right there at the end where he says she was a worshiper of God. This line, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There's something really important, I think, that we can glean here. This would be important for your, this whole community, the east side, any Christian, quite frankly. But the Lord opened her heart. 
Okay? That's a, there's a lot of meaning in there. Um, ask the question, who is doing the work of the ministry? Who's doing the work of this ministry here in Beaverton? This one right here. Is it God or is it you? Huh? I want to just say it's, it's both of them. It's, it's both you and God doing the work of the ministry. We join God on his mission. So God opens her heart. That's a God deal. That's not, there's nothing in there that's uh, God and Paul opened her heart or made her. It's, Luke wants us to see a divine act. He softens her heart or opens it. Somehow he prepares her to be able to hear this message. The message comes from Paul's vocal cords. It comes from his body. And so Paul is joining what God is doing on mission. Paul believes, and you, if you've read anything else by Paul, you know for a fact that Paul believes God is sovereign, like super-duper sovereign. Paul really believes that. And that belief causes him to act. And that isn't always the conclusion we reach when we say God's got this. A lot of times we say, you know, this is God's work and only God can do it, and that. Who am I, little old me, and all that kind of stuff all has some kind of truth in it. But there's almost a false humility or a false understanding of ourselves as kind of losers or sinners instead of redeemed, sent ones who God has entrusted with his mission. Yes? And so there's a piece of it where it's like, I don't want us to ever think that because only God can change your heart only God can sanctify you, only God can save you, that doesn't mean, so then we just sort of kick back and pop some popcorn and see what he's doing out there. We're motivated to join him. Um, you think of in the opening of Ezra, there's this sort of note of the Lord stirred King Cyrus's heart, you know? There's a picture, you can hear echoes of this same movement all throughout the Bible where where God is doing stuff we can't do. You go from Ezra to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you might remember, is the dude who's leading the charge to bring all the people back, and they're going to rebuild the wall. And everybody thinks he's dumb, and they're making fun of him. They're like, he can build something, but it'll be a piece of crap. And if, if a fox jumps on it, it'll fall over. <laughs> and they're all making fun of him. And Nehemiah, in uh, chapter 2, he says, you know what, punks, uh, he says, the God of heaven will give us success. All right? That's the, that's the yeah, it's really not doable uh, unless you're God. <laughs> and guess what? He's, he's going to help us make this. So the God of heaven is going to make this wall come to pass. Now, he hasn't stopped breathing when he says the next part of the same sentence. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. God's going to make this wall come to fruition, so let's get to work. God's going to be saving men and women and children in Beaverton, Oregon, so let's get to work. Because God's doing that, and we want to join him. That's beautiful. All right. So you can, I think that's so important when you see Lydia's heart being opened and Paul working with God, 
And Paul is showing to her what it looks like to be in total allegiance to Jesus. Verse 15. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful unto the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. <laughs> That's strong language. It's kind of a funny scene. Unless you think I'm just faking it here, come on over for tea. Unless you think I'm joking, uh, and I hope you don't, then I want to take care of you. I think it's bold. She prevailed upon us. She was strong. She made it clear where she stood. I'm not messing around here. I'm committed to Jesus for real. This is not the only time that Paul will connect a spiritual reality with a material generosity. It's, it's frequent throughout Acts, is it not? They all got together, the Spirit blew up their world, and they started giving all their stuff to each other. You know, just, I, I am no longer gripping onto the stuff that I used to find my safety in, because God makes me safe. Ben Witherington is a scholar who says, Lydia's generosity of spirit suggested the genuineness of her faith. She becomes extremely generous and hospitable. Come into my house. I think that Witherington is right there. I think that's true. I think that we, if we grasp the gospel, start to shed a little bit of fear. You know, I want to go into my Wells Fargo account and I can't really look at it without going, oh, gosh. You know, uh, hope we'll be okay. You know, it's just, I have been so built in America to trust my financial scenario and want to always focus my life on that and to grip the things that I have because they feel, I just innately feel like they're going to make my life better. And then I find myself giving allegiance to them. And that becomes really problematic for me. That faith in God, her trust in Him. Well, that means that life for her, she, she gave her life to Jesus. That means her life is going to be safer and more pleasurable, yes? It's going to be better. Maybe not. I've said that when you enter into life with God, you enter into real life, the most real possible life you could imagine. But that doesn't mean you will have a safer and more pleasurable experience of life. And if we juxtapose those two, we're in trouble. If we get those up tight next to each other, it's, it's going to lead to problems. I think Luke wants us to see that truth. And so here's where the story is going to take a major turn. All right, Watch what happens. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. That's interesting. We've met a prominent, wealthy, leading woman named Lydia. We know her name. Now we meet a lowly, in that world, worthless, unnamed slave girl. The gospel, though, and his allegiance to Jesus uh, says, well, yeah, you're no less valuable than Lydia or any other human being. You bear the image of God. So here's this slave girl, and this is interesting what she does. She comes in. And it says that she had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So the, the folks who owned her were able to sort of sell her services for fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You know, you're like, that's pretty spot on, really. It doesn't seem to be problematic. Uh, so what's happening here? This she kept doing for many days. That gives us a clue as to how long they're hanging out. They're hanging out for a while. And Paul, uh, I think I, I would join Paul in what we see. He seems sometimes to be a little bit mm, less patient. You know, He gets annoyed with her. He's like, come on, what are you talking about? He becomes greatly annoyed. And finally he turns, I'm in verse 18. He gets annoyed, he turns and he says to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. You know, right now. And it came out of her that very hour. Okay? Stop telling people that we're serving God. Jeez. You know, it's like, uh, I, what are you, why, why, at least she's saying something true. What's going on here? Well, we saw something like this happen in Jesus' ministry too. He'd come into a town and there was the dude possessed by an evil spirit and the dude starts crying out, look, it's the, it's the son of God. And it's like, bingo, he nailed it and Jesus says, stop talking. Why is that? Why is this happening in different places in the New Testament? I think it's something like this. I think it's, it would be, it's the person, uh, I, I have a note here because it came, it worked, here we go. Um, Albert Einstein. Imagine Albert Einstein is at a massive international physics conference and he's presenting a great new discovery. And right after he gets down, the high school sophomore jumps up and says, Yep, yep, he's right. Dude's totally right. Gotta believe him. You know, it'd be like, Shut up, dude, sit down. <laughs> he's kind of he's kinda puffing himself up by riding Einstein's coattails, you know, gathering some of that spotlight. And so I think what she's doing, or the spirit, this evil spirit is doing, is kind of coming in and saying something truthful. And Paul's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're saying that for a different kind of motive. It's not out of allegiance to God. That's out of a whole different thing. So he says, be quiet. He casts the spirit out of her. You'd think mom and dad and everybody would be stoked, except that was kind of profitable for them. So now they're not too stoked about it. It's like when Jesus threw the demons into the pigs and the pigs all ran into the ocean. They're like, hey, where's our bacon going to come from? You know? <laughs> so Paul, Paul sends the, the evil spirit out. The owners get irritated. Verse 19, they saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas. They bring them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. Huh didn't say these men are Roman citizens. These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city, and they advocate customs that are not lawful. You know, they're whining, I think. It's not lawful. <laughs> and so, we don't, verse 22, the crowd joined then in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of Paul and the crew, which I guess is what you did, and then they, they beat them with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, I'd want you to see here a very, very vicious beating. Not like a little hand slap. They beat the tar out of them. And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks, locked them up in shackles. My question for you is, do you think that God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
Yeah? You might have Jeremiah 29, 11 tattooed somewhere on you to remind you that God has a wonderful plan for your life. I'm not going to say that he doesn't. I absolutely believe that God has a wonderful plan for all of our lives. I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't believe that. But here's the problem. We start to fill out what wonderful plan means with things that look a lot like the American dream. And all of a sudden we start teaching one another that God wants you to self-fulfill according to the American dream. And then we want to find communities and churches that either promise that's going to happen or help to make it happen. And all of a sudden we're 30 years into walking with Jesus and we have not left the first love, which is loving God for our own sake. And we start to say, this is kind of hollow and weird. Christianity is kind of dumb. Because it doesn't really fulfill me the way that... And you see what I'm getting at? We go at it for the wrong reason and the wrong way for too long. God has a wonderful plan... But wonderful according to the kingdom means confident, filled with love even in the midst of pain. Ability to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing instead of Father, kill them. Otherwise, they're going to mess up the world worse. That is crazy trust in God. You're safe in the trust that you have for God but not safe from harm. Imagine the pain that Paul and his companions are feeling. Bruises, bloodied, beaten with sticks. Not just physical pain, but the humiliation. Taken out in public, stripped naked. Have you ever been stripped naked in public and beat half to death? And this happened to Paul a lot. Man, that dude was devoted to Jesus. So many of us in that moment as we're locked up with our feet stuck in shackles, cry out to God, what in the world? I wanted to go to Asia, okay? I wanted to go there. You said no, so I followed you, and this is where you led me to? Locked up, humiliated, treated unjustly? And the answer from God, I think, is yes. Now this is on your plate. This is the responsibility before you. Most folks that I know who have grown weary with God and his people began following Jesus with the idea that Christianity would make their life mo better. And it doesn't always do that. Most folks that I know who are filled with faith and hope and love have learned that following Jesus is about serving God and serving others, serving his people. And they've learned that pain and suffering and unfair treatment and humiliation, those are just part of life right now. Our goal is not to figure out the ways to conveniently avoid all of that. Instead, it's to charge headlong into it if that is what God has for us and to trust Him. The deeper wisdom understands that our suffering is deep and real, but it's only for a short while. The author of Hebrews tells us that. And then we enter glory in the full with Jesus. And that understanding, I think, is what allows Paul and his people to do what they do next. So we're coming to the end here. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. You know? <laughs> Isn't that great? Like, 
hey, do you, can you see anything? No, there's too much blood crusted in my eyes. How's your voice? No, they crushed my larynx. All right, let's sing and pray. So they're all beat up and bloody and locked up. They're like, we're going to sing and we're going to pray. And the prisoners are listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that all the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Isn't that great? You know, your handcuffs come undone when an earthquake comes. So they're, they're unfastened. The jailer woke up and he saw that the prison doors were open. You know, that's not good. And he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You know, this is worst case scenario. Remember when the escape story with Peter and Herod ordered that all the prison guards get killed? That's just what happened. So he's like, oh shoot, I'm dead now. And I'd rather just make it happen than have them beat me up. So he's got the sword in hand. He's about to lay down on the thing. And then you, <laughs> it's so good. The jailer, he sees this. He's about to kill himself. And then you, Paul's like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Put the sword down, bro. We're here. You know, and so, okay, now he's freaking out because this is real weird. Doors are open. Prisoners are still there. Paul says, don't harm yourself, verse 28, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, you know, bring in a candle. And they bring in some lights. He's like, holy cow, they're all here. And then trembling with fear, a lot of people in the Bible tremble with fear when they engage with God for real, you know. He trembles with fear. He falls down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a real quick turnaround from about to plunge the sword through the old chest to... I want to be saved. Something is different with you guys. And they said the gospel in the most simmered down possible way. And I don't believe this is, the gospel is all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together. But this is a great summary way to put it. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay, that's a big deal. It's not just think good, correct thoughts about Jesus in your head. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Think about that. We, I don't think any one of us would reasonably say, that means that when dad believes in Jesus, all the sons and daughters and children all automatically get to go to heaven too. Right? That's not what it means. Believing, if the jailer would do that, would change his allegiance would change his life, and those changes would be reflected in his home life, and people there would be able to see that he was different, and they too would be exposed to the saving gospel and be saved. That's all packed up in this one sentence. If that's not true, what I just said, then what is true is that once dad gets saved, everybody's automatically in. I don't think any of us is going to argue that. So this is about if you believe in Jesus, your life is going to change and your closest people are going to see it and they're going to change too. So, I think that that's exactly what happens. The call is to see the truth and submit yourself to it for a lifetime. This jailer understands that Paul is inviting him to believe, which means agree with Jesus and live like Jesus. You and your household will be saved. It's beautiful. Well, they speak the word to him, verse 32, and to all who were in his house, and he took the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. I wonder if some of those wounds he actually inflicted on them. What an amazing turnaround that would be. 
he's sitting there scrubbing some of the dirt and filth out of a big cut in Paul's leg, and he's like, I put that there when I was beating him out in the street. I don't know if that's the case, but at least his crew put those very wounds on him. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family, and they brought them up to the house and set food before them. This is quite a different change for the way he's treating Paul and company. Now he's hospitable, he's generous, he's tending to their wounds. His allegiance has changed, hasn't it? God's power definitely made this happen. Paul's allegiance to God gave him courage to be on mission, even there in the jail cell. My friend Jelani and I were meeting on Friday, and we were talking about this idea of, God, would you give me an opportunity to share the gospel? And how that can sometimes jack us up really bad, because we have this sort of notion where it's like, if I, if I, uh, I need a really good, eloquent way to convince people in the perfect time and at the perfect place, God, can you please make that happen? And it's like, maybe your neighbor knows that you're suffering deeply and they see you walking through that suffering in a way we similarly see Jesus walking through suffering. Trusting God, not hating people, not trying to get revenge. They see you in a trustful, loving relationship with the Savior and are therefore exposed to the good news that there's more to this life. I think that Paul becomes the gospel to this jailer and the people around. And because Paul is on mission with Jesus, even there, in a dark place, the jailer is totally changed. But it's also because of God's miraculous change, isn't it? The earthquake and the opening of the doors. It's so many participation places in this story, isn't it? The jailer sees it, he feels it, he knows that there are, he has rules to follow, overseers to obey. He's got all these allegiances, and when he comes into the saving gospel of Christ, all of those allegiances change. Now he cares for the health and well-being of Paul and companions. It's amazing. It's so cool. What if you allow someone to see how you're processing your pain? What if you allow somebody to see your own struggles with doubt and questions about the scriptures and life with God? They see honesty. They see hope. They see the gospel lived out in you. And now to close. We, uh, Luke gives us a hilarious anecdote here at the very end of the story, verses 35 to 40. There's some background here that's crucial just in terms of being a Roman citizen. So one of the most famous law cases in Roman history is a young lawyer, Cicero, and then Gaius Verres is a very prominent leader and we could go real deep into this, but by and large, you have a system set up where if you've got a lot of power, you can work that to your advantage to have entire cities paying taxes to you. It's kind of like a tax collector, you know, they were frowned upon, but at a whole citywide level. For a long time, Verres was using his power, and there, there's evidence of actual shiploads of wealth going to his private estate. And when people tried to whistleblow on him, he would have them silenced and they, or they'd disappear. It's like old mobster stuff, right? And then a couple of Sicilians get some evidence that he's doing this. They come to Gaius, uh, they, they come to Cicero, and they say, help us. Help us in the courts. Cicero starts investigating. He's an up-and-comer. He's like, this is a big case. 
he figures it out and it's tried and Varys is found guilty. And why? What was the big thing that caused Varys to lose all of his money and power and ultimately he goes into a self-imposed exile? It was because one of the whistleblowers he had crucified and that was known but what was even more known was that person that he had crucified to shut him up was a Roman citizen. And that fact is what made that the most, one of the most famous cases in Roman history. And that's the backdrop to which you see this next uh, scenario play out. All right, read it with me, and then we'll end here. This is Paul and Timothy's culture. Uh, when it was day, the magist- magistrates sent to police saying, uh, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, hey, uh, the big shots who were all mad at you before, they're not mad at you now, so you guys can just, just go away. Be gone with you. And here's Paul. Well, this is cool. Sometimes we think that following Jesus means we have to just kind of be sissy babies and let people walk all over us. I don't think that's what Christianity is about at all. And here's what Paul says. Look, it's so funny. He's like, no, 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 no. They're not gonna, I'm not just walking away from this. He says, verse 37, they beat us publicly, uncondemned, meaning we never had a trial. Men who are Roman citizens, Paul says. That's who I am, and I just got totally messed with, and they have thrown us into prison, and now they want to throw us out secretly? Uh-uh. No, let them come down and take us out themselves. Isn't that great? I love Paul. He's so good. Let us come down and take us out. So the police reported these things to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They're like, oh, shoot. Man, we don't want to end up, okay, all right. So they come down. You can imagine them walking down all nervous. And so they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia. I love it. They loop back around and say, hey, you got, I bet they had a great time telling stories that night while they were eating, I don't know sheep or something. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. All right? And that's the end of it. Luke has shown us several pictures of unstoppable allegiance to Jesus and his gospel mission. And he's shown us how it changes people in the moment, right away, over time, and all of that. It's a picture of entering life with Christ, not just for our own benefit. And there are lots of benefits. Yeah, Let's not say there aren't. I've never had a community of human beings more meaningful to me than Jesus' church in my whole life. There's tons of benefits, but that's not the reason. It's not just about me getting mine. It's also a deep and growing love toward our neighbor and a deeper and more confident allegiance to Jesus. We see believers on a path of maturing, changing, becoming stronger. Timothy and the flint knife, you know, that strengthened him. Meeting with the women at the river, those barriers coming down, changing, the world upending. Uh, Wealthy Lydia, she's not self-preserving, saving all her money for her, so she turns generous. The slave girl, she's freed from the bondage of an evil spirit, and she's loved as an equal, even though she has no name and is worthless in their society. The jailer, he puts his allegiance to the empire down, and starts doing what is alive in Christ. And through it all, Luke has once again shown us the oh-so-familiar pattern where the Christian will face accusations, the Christian will face threats, 
then real violence and intimidation, and then vindication. That's a small picture we see in individual lives that I think is a picture of the church overall. I think you and I and everybody here know we are not walking into the next 20 years of a whole lot of feel-goodery to be Christians in this world. It will be difficult and demanding and cost us deeply, and it's so worth it because it's alive. It's alive, and it's not rooted in something temporal. It's an eternal kingdom we're invited into. So that's awesome. Thanks for having me. I'd like to pray now and then go back through and read Acts 16 now that we've gone through it and keep thinking about that word allegiance. Where do I see allegiances holding strong? Where do I see the gospel changing them? It's awesome. I think allegiance is also a good way to think of faith, but that's for another day. Father, we love you. We trust you. You've demonstrated for thousands of years that you are trustworthy. And yet for thousands of years, your people have suffered. So we don't say you're trustworthy because you make life all wonderful and comfortable. We say you're trustworthy because you alone are good. You alone give life. You've shown us that you have sovereign power over this world. And then in your great wisdom, which we don't understand always, you've loved us and invited us to be with you and to be with you on this mission to bring life to other people in this world. I pray that you would help us to see human beings the way you do, as infinite miracles to be loved, not as obstacles to compete with. I pray that you would change our hearts and help us move through the stages of loving you to become mature and strong. We are so grateful. We love you with all of our heart. Amen.